welcome to Janassi Ranch Podcast. I'm your host, Angelo Janassi. Thank you for joining me. I created this podcast to learn from people who are reimagining the way we work, live, and eat. This first episode, I'm thrilled to introduce to you my friend in the regenerative ranching world, Molly Taylor. Molly is the sales and ranch manager at PT Ranch, a beautiful regenerative ranch nestled about an hour east of Sacramento, California. Welcome, Molly. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Angelo. Molly, why don't you kind of introduce yourself to the viewers and listeners and tell me a little bit about yourself and really how you got to this point. A lot of it is actually just a series of mistakes that led me to a, a grace, actually. I studied urban planning at NYU, grew up in California, and then went over to New York for college. Was planning on working at a boarding school in the UK, actually, founded by a philosopher who I, who I had really admired growing up, only to discover that it was like kind of a cult. <laughs> and anyways, left very, very rapidly from that and started woofing in Europe because it was just a cheap way to travel and learn as you travel. And I ended up in Tuscany picking olives, actually. I was calling my mom because olive picking was kind of rough and we weren't getting paid and it was like six days a week of olive picking and it turns out that she was picking olives here and she was paying people to pick her olives and it just it kind of was like a small very like unamazing light bulb moment in just the simple fact that like my mom was hiring labor to do labor that I was literally doing for free like halfway across the world so I I kind of started thinking about my mom's idea to take over the ranch that she was inheriting from her father and all of the passion that she was gaining for regenerative agriculture. And I started reading a bit more and found myself here a few months later after attending Eco Farm, which was really kind of my foray, like very literally into agriculture was going to Eco Farm. But yeah, so that was three, three, two and a half, three years ago. And just total trial by error. We worked with a few people to begin with and there was some help with designing enterprises. Uh, but like like we were discussing, I mean, there's so much out there just on YouTube and the internet. And if you have land and access to capital, I mean, I, I started like 80% away ahead of where you know most people can start just with that access. So I think it's really important just to acknowledge that type of privilege that lets people be creative to begin with, because it, right. it's, it's totally, it's totally a, you know, a gamble, but yeah, so here we are three years later and we have some, you know, multiple enterprises on what was my grandfather's ranch that he purchased in the fifties. That's great. Molly, I'm really intrigued after looking at PT Ranch's website, uh, quote a line in there that says that the ambition is to bring new life to old ranching traditions. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, I mean, like we were talking about, I think I think that there, well, as we all know, there there is an aging, you know, demographic in the agricultural community and landowners, agricultural landowners are now the majority of them are very close to retirement age. And I think with that comes you know a changing of the guard and a lot of that changing of the guard is going to be passed down to the, those people's children um but in some cases it's not that linear and i think in my case it wasn't quite that linear the land was owned by my grandfather but my grandfather and my mother did not were not agriculturalists we didn't 
manage the land ourselves. So really, I'm, I guess, technically the first generation of actually managing the land, which right. I think is is emblematic of a change that we're kind of undergoing right now culturally in the industry, which is young people who maybe previously didn't have an agricultural background are getting into agriculture and they're interested in you know, a myriad of things that relate to relate to food systems, anything from climate change mitigation to, you know, food deserts to indigenous land sovereignty. The list is like very long, but I think my mom put that on the on the website. And I, I think for her, it meant that she grew up visiting this ranch and she interned 40 years ago for the the rancher who has leased this property from my grandfather since you know way before i was born i think she saw the beauty she was always captured by the beauty of like the western cowboy but also saw some some holes in it that she i think wanted to kind of reinvent and she's a designer by you know by trade and i think kind of part of her wanted to redesign the face of the Western cowboy and include aspects of other cultures and other traditions that weren't necessarily as traditional as what has become the norm in, in ranching. Right. And it, it's interesting you should say that because I, I think, you know, looking at, you have a lot of different holes in the water with different projects going on in the ranch, you know, with the Climate Smart Agriculture, the Savory Institute Outcome Verification Program. I also Mm -hmm. know that you are pretty active in the direct-to-consumer market with area drop-offs. I know you're very active here in Sacramento uh, at the farmer's market. And then I also saw that you you have now artists in residence. With that, how do you see those different projects kind of being unified around a vision for PT Ranch? Well, I mean, in all honesty, sometimes, you, you know, I go through my day and I don't always feel like there's a unified vision, but that, that might speak like more to my personality than, than the reality. But I think generally speaking, we knew that we wanted to have a value added niche product, which requires a certain type of marketing and a certain sales channel, which, you know, is direct to consumer in a lot of ways is also, you know, working directly with wholesalers in some cases, but it's very hands-on and requires a brand identity, which I'm not apt to create, but is just necessary. And I'm, you know, just learning as we go how to do that. But so the direct to consumer part of our business is really just out of necessity because we're a 500 acre property. We there, unless we were to go out and lease a bunch of land and become like a larger cow calf operation, or we, we really couldn't sustain our, ourselves as a, as a large, as a, you know, multi-generation family on 500 acres, only half of which is really aerial irrigated land. So we knew that was a constraint. We knew that we already had connections to urban populations from, you know, my childhood and my parents' professional life, which, which is honestly a missing, a missing link for many people that we were very privileged to have. Uh, I think something that is really an area that needs to be worked on is how can small, medium-sized, even large producers make those connections with urban populations and, and kind of like make make a story for themselves and connect with those people to get the value added. Yeah, and then, you know, EOV, the Ecological Outcome Verification through the Savory Institute uh, actually was a pretty recent development 
that came just through, you know, hearsay. And I I really jumped on it because since the get-go, we've been really interested in regenerative agriculture, carbon farming, climate smart agriculture, however you want to call it. We've been fascinated by soil health and carbon sequestration on working landscapes. And it's been challenging for me to really have a cohesive monitoring plan. So EOV really jumped out because the Savory Institute is offering that to producers. We we received a grant to be onboarded, and I, I believe there's a few remaining grants. But even for a producer who's paying out of pocket to be part of EOV, I think we'll see and then, you know, either an immediate or potentially longer term return on their investment by by basically what I was describing before, just a value added to their product and access to new markets. I know that the other EOV producer in California had, you know, calls from Nestle and and other huge corporations wanting hundreds of thousands of pounds of offal. And, you know, she's a grass finished beef producer and she was, you know, she, she, she can barely even scratch the surface of that type of demand. So, I think we, we want to both tap into those markets and we want to become associated with a verification like this, which is not a certification that's, you know, just checking a box saying you didn't spray a pesticide this year, you're organic. We, I'm really intrigued by the idea of it being outcome verified where they're monitoring a whole slew of metrics that will indicate whether we're actually on a regenerative course. Um, so yeah. And then that, I guess, ties back to the climate smart, uh, grant that we received, which is through CDFA, which is a very unique program that, you know, is unique to California that incentivizes farmers and ranchers to actually implement these practices, which is just like mind blowingly awesome in the sense that it actually pays you for all of the costs of, you know, farming no-till or spreading compost on rangeland or planting some cover crop. So we, we will embark on that in this fall and we're really, we're really uh, excited and really grateful for all of the people who lobbied for that funding to be available to growers. It's really awesome. That's great. Well, I wanted to ask you on the, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, some of the barriers and challenges you face kind of professionally and both personally, I think from a standpoint of Looking at, you know, you you mentioned about having a 500-acre ranch as opposed to a larger ranch, Uh, the challenges with, you know, the direct-to-consumer. What do you you see as some of the the barriers to PT Ranch as far as expanding or furthering furthering the business forward? Right. Yeah, there are numerous. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, to start with, I guess, marketing as one, um, direct-to-consumer marketing requires, you know, a certain type of salesmanship that I think a lot of farmers and ranchers just inherently didn't get in the business to do. They aren't necessarily looking to interact with every single consumer or buyer of the product. And it's challenging because, you know, a lot of it is really personal. I think the average person who produces commodity beef probably has very little concern for the final person who's consuming that beef. That's not even a concern that necessarily crosses their mind. They're worried about the auction prices or the commodity prices, and then it goes off and becomes very much untraceable. Whereas, you know, I 
every week interact with my customers and they come back the next week after buying a chicken or piece of lamb and they tell me how it was and it's wow. it's like intimidating because wow. Wow. you know wow. like sometimes they don't like it and it's an, it's right. an expensive product right. <laughs> uh, wow, that's, so, i never thought about that that's wow that's a really interesting point yeah and i mean most of the time they like it but there's definitely people who you know either have never had a freedom ranger chicken that is you know has a different taste than the cornish cross or they're used to a like heavy set wool lamb and have never had a, a lighter framed hair sheep lamb so when you get that final moment of you know like that final test and then that person's disappointed it's challenging because it's very personal you've known that animal since you know either the day it was born or the day it arrived as a little chick in, in its box in the you know post office and wow. you knew all of the crazy things that you had to do to build that coop and to find a slaughterhouse that was usda certified and find the right packaging that was appealing to a customer but checked all of the you know usda boxes and you've right. created all your your funny signs at the farmer's market to try to <laughs> convey your conviction about regenerative agriculture and it's it's just very personal because i've been you know i was i used to be a waitress and i would you know deal with unhappy uh you know people at the these high-end restaurants in new york all the time and it wasn't personal i could go to my manager and you know i could take it to the chef and say oh this guy didn't like it and you know too bad <laughs> but if it's uh if it's something that you have put a lot of time and energy into, it's just so much more personal. And I don't blame people for wanting to kind of like send things off into the ether a little bit and focus on their production and be on the land and focus on that part of their, their um, system. I mean, it's, it's challenging in its own ways, but it's, it definitely doesn't have the challenge of an unhappy disgruntled customer. Right. As far as for the, the process, if you could walk listeners through, Molly, with, you know, kind of the, the challenges that of, you know, it's not just as easy as a raising, finishing, and bringing to market. I imagine it's, it's a much more complex process. Kind of how does these, those processes, where do you see some room for improvement kind of allow the growth of more direct to consumer big part of your of your market to to grow that out right i think generally distribution is a big bottleneck as is processing i guess processing would come before distribution but there's there's really limited usda processing for small producers and that is that is a major challenge and and you know to drive multiple multiple hours to get um, an animal to slaughter and then to pay that premium as a small person bringing in a small lot. Right. A lot of times you have to pay that even that extra premium on an already expensive product, uh, which just further, you know, makes the product that much more expensive for the, the buyer. But definitely processing and then distribution, I think, is another issue. We, I think COVID has, has highlighted both of these issues, but I think one of the highlights of COVID is that we're we're understanding the weaknesses in our processing. We're understanding that a super concentrated processing system is has inherent weaknesses. 
Um, I know that there's a lot of interest now in getting meat from local producers who have brought it to local slaughterhouses because people are suddenly paying attention to the scale at which the majority of their meat is being processed. Right. And then distribution, if you're, if you're a local producer who's managed to find a local processor, how do you distribute your meat effectively or your vegetables effectively? I mean, you need storage, which is expensive. There's a rebirth happening now with COVID where I think software, there's software that's being developed specifically to kind of tackle this challenge. But I think it's going to take a while for people to even understand that they can maybe become part of this new food system where they can you know, check their iPhone and there's a map of drop-off locations, you know, in parking lots around their neighborhood and they can just right. show up to the parking lot and pre-order and pick up produce that was grown within the, you know, very much within their food shed. Right. Uh, I think there was very little reason for the average consumer to do that previously when they could have a fantastic experience walking into Whole Foods and getting their kale and their fancy smoothie at the same time. Right. Whereas now that experience is so much more challenging that there's much more incentive to just skip it and to actually get truly local food from these kind of unusual means. Right. I love, I love just too how you've really, as far as the distribution's concerned, you know, with that, you know, like you were saying of pulling up an app to see the drop off and locations throughout a particular city. How uh, recent has been that with the, I've seen the Bay Area drops and kind of having different locations. Kind of going forward, how do you see that kind of working out as far as having an app where customers could say, hey, we'll be like similar to like almost like a food truck, I guess, in the sense right. that people would say like, hey, PT Ranch is gonna be at this, this location and in Sacramento or San Francisco or the East Bay at a certain time and just kind of having, I guess that's where the building a kind of consumer base with knowledge of PT Ranch, like you were saying earlier, that it kind of becomes like a relationship marketing. Yeah, I mean, we started, we definitely started the Bay Area drop-offs as like a pivot right when COVID started. We realized that there was a there was a shift happening and we wanted to we wanted to jump on it um you know the fact that people can't eat out in the same way that they used to be able to is just like profoundly changing the way that money is being spent right now right. um and there there's both a, a there's a there's a kind of a lack of that capital in the sense that some people are unemployed and they're definitely struggling but i also think that those who have withstood the um the stresses of unemployment and the variability that covid's presenting have a little extra money in their pocket because they're not able just to go and frivolous frivolously spend it on whatever and i i'm a great example of a frivolous eater i love i love dining out i love the experience of being in a restaurant Absolutely. i think they're crucial elements of the food system i'm like very much worried about the future of the restaurants but the average person I think has some more money because they just it's not that appealing to eat outside all the time and it's a little stressful even if you can find a restaurant that has outdoor dining or you know takeout is really not the same so people end up having this extra money and we've just found that our business has really 
doubled in the over the last couple of months because people people are cooking again i mean literally like we have gone back 70 years to the point when people like were really working with the ingredients of each recipe in their most basic form like you buy your chicken and then you buy your spices and you buy your vegetables and you actually are i think people are learning how to cook again which is is interesting because i think that we were steadily losing the that culinary ability um yeah but yeah i mean in regards to the the app question i mean we struggle we use square because that's what we use to that's our um you know our eat that's a that's our our commerce point of sale at our farmers markets and anywhere that whenever we sell anything so the drop-offs have also been on square but then our website is square site which is a different thing and that if you were to shop on our website and buy something on our shopping cart you'd experience a different checkout and so those things are not quite streamlined yet and it's not my forte <laughs> uh and you know i also am kind of cheap when it comes to upgrading to you know the blah 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 best newest thing so but it's 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 working for now and uh there's tons of platforms out there like barn to door i think is one and there's there's the whole slew of options for people who want to kind of get into that e-commerce with their their food products um right there's a little bit of a learning curve and you know people are so used to online shopping that they're expecting a pretty like professional experience when they when they do it right Um, because people are very used to Amazon at this point and the, just the routine checkout confirmation, you know, receipts, everything going pretty much perfectly. So if your experience is like subpar in that way, people are really going to hold you accountable. Right. right. Just the, the two clicks and done, but that's uh, right. not always the realistic expectation for, you know, uh, everyday sites. Right. <laughs> Molly, I wanted to ask you too, I've, I, it made me think about when you were talking about kind of people knowing where their food's coming from. And I, uh, for listeners, the PT Ranch is a stunning, stunning landscape. And they have uh, many different enterprises on, on the ranch, as Molly stated. One of the, uh, they have a granary space and, uh, you know, the entire ranch for events, they've had speaker series of different speakers come there, corporate retreats. It's a stunning landscape about 45 minutes east of Sacramento. Would you say, Molly, about 45? Yeah, 45 to an hour. 45 an hour east of Sacramento. It's a a beautiful spot. And I kind of wanted to dive in a little bit deeper as far as to connecting people and urban our urban counterparts to ranch life. I, I really feel that in a lot of ways that you have a lot of different buckets that you really bridge the urban rural divide of what's going on in rural America. Um, mm-hmm. I think through, you know, obviously through the agricultural sales that you do. But if you could talk to me a little bit about your events, the speaker series, and kind of how that 
ties in as well to kind of reconnecting people back to the land and to the soil. Right. I mean, we were consumers before we were producers, which I think is a really important thing to highlight. We did not growing up in agriculture and growing up in these urban places just predisposes us to have that flexibility. And I definitely think it's would be it's much more challenging to replicate if you didn't grow up in those environments. And I think that's something that I I wish wasn't the case. I wish that it wasn't so such a vast difference between the two worlds that you would have had to both, you know, be reared in, you know, an affluent community in some suburb or city and then you know, go to a farm and ranch and learn how to do that to be able to speak both languages. But unfortunately, I think there is a bit of this like dual dialect happening where if you've grown up in a city or a suburb, you do speak one dialect. And if you have grown up in rural America, you speak another one. And it presents a lot of challenges, I think, to those identities. And it's clearly contributing to our political divide right now as a country. Um, And was extremely eye-opening for me as an individual coming from such an urbanized background um and has really like deeply deeply made me question just elements of myself that were so much based on that you know environment but um i guess i guess there there's i definitely think there are still ways that people can open up their properties and open up their land and contribute to closing that divide. I just think it depends on the individual. Like I, I, I feel like there's plenty of people who just aren't that keen on, you know, hosting large groups of people or even the small group of people coming through their, their property. But um, those people aside, there are those who I think would be willing or even excited about hosting guests and explaining to them what they do. And I think those are the people that need to be focused on and championed and given the tools with which to do that. And I, I think, you know, some, some of these more small local farm organizations, like we have farms of Amador here, there's Calaveras grown in Calaveras. And these are, you know, all over rural communities that support local agriculture but are just like systematically underfunded and what if like those types of groups had more funding to start farm trails like sonoma and napa have these really robust farm trails and um they have a very you know deep connection with the san francisco bay area because that's kind of perceived as the san francisco bay area food source even though most of it's coming from the central valley i think urbanites from San Francisco love to perceive Marin, Sonoma, Napa as their food basket because it's beautiful, it's perfect for tourism, and all the wines there, you know, why not drink some wine and imagine that all of your food is coming from this vineyard. (laughs) But I think there's a lot, a lot of education, a lot of work that needs to be done in the rest of California to bring people out of, you know, these major hotspots of consumerism where most of our food is going to and show them what's going on and I think there's plenty of people who are really really who really care about their land whether or not they're in trusts or whether or not they plan on ever conserving it I think that people 
do have a very deep connection with their land. And they, my experience has been even the people who may not really want to talk about it once they, once they are given an opportunity to explain something that they feel is theirs, they're they're they kind of open up and they become very engaged. And I think it's just a matter of supporting those people and giving them a very easy platform to do so. I mean, not saying like design your own speaker series, design your own Airbnb, you know, like ecotourism platform, like just telling them that, why don't you sign up for this farm tour program that's already established through farms of Amador and we're going to handle all the logistics and the liability and just put your name on the list and be here at a certain time and welcome people for an hour on a Saturday afternoon once a month or once every four months or whatever. Right. And um, explain to them your passion project of walnuts or, you know, whatever you're doing, just go into it. And uh, I think, I think that would be a really cool thing to see if, if, especially with COVID and people kind of like fleeing the urban space. I mean, people are going to end up living in communities in which they've never lived in before Wow. And people are going to want to connect with them, I think, and understand where they're living. And that's going to be an important part of opening up those communities that are honestly pretty hard to become involved in as an outsider. I mean, rural communities, I think for as much as we love to highlight the community as this very warm place, I think it's from the outside very impenetrable. And we need to do a better job of welcoming people who don't speak or look or talk like us and right. and make them feel comfortable and give them actual ways of participating and experiencing the things that seem very normal to us. Wow. I loved I loved your statement. Correct if I'm wrong, Molly. We were consumers before we were producers. I love yep, very I much. that. That's uh that's a quotable. I'm gonna write that one down in the journal. That's that's terrific. That's so so spot on. And it really makes me think on a very, from a very different perspective. At the end of the day, you know, that we were all consumers before producers, you know, especially if living in an urban environment. Right. One of the also touch base with PT Ranch has really been really pioneering and leading the way on regenerative agriculture. For the listeners who don't really know much about regenerative agriculture and kind of, I, I really feel that there's an incredible amount of promise in regenerative agriculture and it's slowly but surely becoming more prominent in policy discussions and in more general acceptance or moving forward of regenerative agriculture than it has been in the past. But I know that there's a lot of a lot of benefits to regenerative agriculture and when you talked about soil health as well too if you kind of, you know, the soil health looking to help with carbon sequestration, to battle climate change, which our generation is going to be really faced with having to deal with. Do you mind giving the listeners kind of a, a little bit of an overview about regenerative agriculture and kind of how, how it's practiced at PT Ranch? Yeah, definitely. Firstly, I, I'm flattered that you consider us a pioneer, but again, I feel like we are really following in the footsteps of people who came before us. And, you know, with the access of the internet, literally, you're able to just 
people create videos that describe exactly what they're doing. And even though that's only 10% of the equation, we so happen to have the land and the capital and not the knowledge. So, so <laughs> being, being able to have the knowledge and access, access the knowledge was super important, but it's essentially regenerative agriculture is one in which we focus on the, I, I would say, you know, the, the land as an ecosystem and understand that soil is something that is alive and that is, is very much sensitive and we can either work with it to increase its vitality and its health, or we can ignore it to its detriment. And that's, I think, why the world word regenerative has really taken off is the idea that you don't spray, you know, pesticides or herbicides is really just like, have you, you know, ripped the bandaid off or not? And these other much more complex things are happening underneath the surface, literally, <laughs> of the soil. There's definitely a couple principles, like as far as practices go, like reducing tillage, keeping living roots in the soil for as long as possible, increasing your biodiversity, and you know, the list goes on. But I think those those principles are 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 inherently more complex than telling someone you plant your crop at this time of the year after you've tilled it three times and the soil is perfectly prepared for you. There's no weed, there's no living animal. And if anything but your crop comes up, you spray it with this one thing, you harvest it at this time, and then you till it again. And I, I think that there's, there's always complexities in farming. There's always variability in producing food, but the the variability in regenerative agriculture is much greater. And I think the long-term effect of it is that you become more resilient to change, which is kind of the most challenging thing to communicate to people who haven't really started to look into regenerative agriculture because the immediate transition from conventional to regenerative is wrought with peril. <laughs> There's plenty of mistakes to make. And I think... That's why funding mechanisms and education has started to really focus on that transition period because that is a huge challenge and it goes also hand in hand with what we've been talking about as far as marketing, distribution, all these, these other things. You, if you're starting to produce a really high quality product because you're producing it in a regenerative way, you're going to start opening yourself up to these markets that you can either further capitalize on through you know, marketing it as such, but you aren't necessarily going to, you might increase your yield, which will increase your bottom line, but to even further add value on that practice is going to require marketing and all these other things that might not come so easily to the person who was called to farming originally. We can get more into the individual practices if you want, but there's, there's a lot. That's a, that's a great like overview. I think of, of for, for everyone, including myself, as far as, you know, what kind of the, the bedrock principles, I guess, of, of regenerative agriculture. And I, and I think that through, you know, many of the different projects going on at PT Ranch right now or have gone on in the past, you're really building a case for the importance of ecosystems and, you know, a, a complete holistic ecosystem for rangeland, for ranch lands across the state. Having a lot of the research, I think, is starting to come in line with 
a lot of movement towards holistic regenerative agriculture and its benefits that it can bring. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the thing I love to talk about most with my friends who I grew up with in, you know, the Bay area and New York and even LA, I just love to talk about beef and other ruminant animal products because you know, it's so vilified. And I likewise just fell into this like assumption that ruminant animal production was like one of the leading causes of climate change. And I completely did not understand what I was talking about. And I think that it's it's a really complex thing to tease out because the way that we currently produce beef does contribute to climate change. And there is that aspect that we can't ignore. But we must focus on the life cycle of the animal and the fact that the animal is living on rangelands, which are the predominant land type across the world. Right. And if we were to remove that animal off, like just start with that one aspect, like if we were to remove the animal from that landscape, those la landscapes would rapidly degenerate right. and become susceptible to wildfire there, and, you know, exude carbon as the you know, biomass oxidized on an annual basis, just naturally as it does, if it's not eaten by a cow or, or a sheep. Right. And if it's likewise not eaten by a cow or a sheep, it's very much susceptible to wildfire. Um, and we know that's a, we know very, very well what risk that poses in California, Australia. I mean, just starting with that and explaining that to the, to my friends is, is really interesting because like, like I, I just knew because it was what I thought at one point, like I just envisioned a cow in a feedlot and I did not, I literally thought a cow was born into a feedlot. Like I just thought, <laughs> and I just, you know, little did I know that it was, you know, you could never really make money feeding a cow in a feedlot for its entire life. And maybe people do, but I'm fairly certain it's economically unfeasible to do so and that there's these vast vast ecosystems that support these animals for 75 percent of their lifespan and even though i think that there's a very real argument to be had about the 25 percent of the end and we can go into that if you want but to focus at least for this conversation on the 75 percent to those people who may be currently vilifying meat and you know thinking that the impossible burger is the way to go i just think is a great way to start because I just think that grassland ecosystems, rangeland ecosystems have a huge potential to store carbon long term. And one of the best ways to do that is to protect the economic means by which they're useful. And they're useful because we can produce a commodity off of them. If we cease to be able to produce a commodity off of them, what are we going to do with them? Are they going to be developed? So they're not, they're not aerable. We can't produce soy for your impossible burger on these landscapes, you know? So not to mention yeah, a, a lot. monocrop, you know, uh, culture there for, for growing the ingredients for impossible burgers, you know, they kind of disrupting the ecosystem there. Right. All one, one variety. Yeah, I mean, even if you go into highly degraded rangeland ecosystems with maybe a handful of annual grasses, there's still a diversity there that would tenfold what you would find in a conventional soil operation. I mean, yeah, it's just from a soil health perspective, it's like night and day, even in a degraded rangeland. You know, absolutely. And I, I encourage all 
all listeners to really check out PT Ranch's social media. I love what you're doing on the storytelling front, Molly. I have so many friends who like follow follow PT Ranch and they'll send me your stories. You're doing a great job of really connecting with what's going on with a much broader audience and doing it in a fun and informative way at that. So I really love the I love the work you're doing <laughs> there. You. It's, a, it's I really cool. it's like to like, you know, when I fire it up and look at it, like the stories, it's like, this is awesome. It's just, you oh, know, thank the you. chickens and the different views that you have for your stories. And it's, yeah, I really, I really like refused to manage social media out of pride for a while. I was like, I am not going to like, <laughs> you know, subject myself to this scrutiny, like, but it's such an important tool of communication. And I think to your point, like maybe sometimes I don't feel like I'm being my authentic, like weird self at the moment, but it's, it's important to be able to communicate to like a broad audience. And I think just being super factual about what's happening, like literally the animals are producing manure and they are biting the plants and just right. getting into the minutia of things like helps right. Right. kind of. <laughs> I love, I love just like the, you know, the, I think it was the angle of like the, the chicks, the little chicks, and like, you know, even like the cows and just, you know, and the dogs, uh, right. you know, on the, the ATVs or whatnot. It's just, it's really fun. I, I love, love the storytelling component you're doing there. So uh, definitely keep up that, <laughs> that great work. <laughs> Where can people learn more about PT Ranch and most importantly, how to, uh, how can people support, you know, the work that that PT Ranch and you are, are doing? You can sign up for our newsletter on our website. Um, that's one of the main ways that we communicate about like new sales channels. And we're always at the Sunday Farmer's Market in Sacramento under the highway. We're doing the Bay Area drop-offs about once, once a month. That gets communicated via the newsletter. Following us on Instagram actually is a pretty good way. I find Instagram's pretty easy to use, so I use a lot. I don't use Facebook really at all. It just seems like kind of complicated. I don't use it. <laughs> um, but, and then, yeah, I, th I think just more generally, I, I mean, no, regardless of where you are, just if there is a slightly more cumbersome way to find, to get your food, and maybe if it costs a little bit more, you might be onto something. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess I just encourage everyone to seek out the inconvenient things that might have seemed kind of inconsequential previously and and maybe accept that that they're inconvenient for a good reason and and try to support it as best you can and engage with the people producing the food and understand why it might be more of a challenge for them to get that food product to you and also understand the benefit that that food product is literally bringing to your health and to the health of the the planet literally and the air that you breathe and the water that you drink and just Absolutely. know that you're supporting people and doing work that has, you know, so many benefits other than just a healthy food product. Absolutely. That's, you hit it right on the head, Molly. I love, love to hear that. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I love this podcast idea. I can't wait to see how it develops. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Janassi Ranch podcast. I hope you will join me in this journey as I continue to speak with people who are reimagining the way we live, work, and eat. Please subscribe and share with your friends.